Allen on politics. distrust of American elections in order to push through laws that crack down on voting rights. That was Let's Work Together performed decades ago by Canned Heat, but I still share that sentiment. This is Alan on Politics, and I'm Alan, and I'd like to work together with you to create a common understanding of what's going on in our political world. So I give you my views through this podcast slash YouTube video, and I hope to hear from you in the comments section of either the YouTube channel or the Allen on Politics Facebook page. Also remember to subscribe, like, share, and all that other good stuff. Today's topic is the threats to democracy in the United States. And I emphasize the plural there, threats, because I see them coming from both major political parties. The most serious threat, in my opinion, is coming from the Republican Party, where in several state legislatures, where Republicans have a majority, they are starting to pass bills, more bills actually, that uh, would have the effect of making it harder for voters to vote, and in particular, voters that tend to vote Democratic. So that's the voter suppression efforts that you've probably heard of. But even of more concern, in a few states, and it will, they'll probably try in others as well, such as the, the ones they're working in now, Georgia, Arkansas, and Arizona, they want to take power away from the ordinary administers of election in their states and hand it over to the state legislature. That is, people like the elected secretary of state or bipartisan boards of election at the state or local level, they want to take their power and give it over to the state legislature dominated by Republicans who are continuing to perpetrate the idea that there's massive fraud in elections. There's a recent article in the New Yorker by Jane Mayer, who's known for a 2017 book on dark money. This article is titled, The Big Money Behind the Big Lie. The main contention of the article is that there's a dark money network funded by wealthy and sometimes prominent conservatives who want not only to pass these voter suppression laws, but delegitimize future elections to make it easier for them to overturn the results. And on the other side, on the Democratic side, of course, progressives recognizing this threat to democratic processes in the United States and how radical it is, voted for Joe Biden to make sure that Trump wasn't reelected as president. And of course, the Democratic establishment is eternally grateful to those progressives as it's demonstrating in its actions, such as, and I'm being ironic here, such as the recent special election to Ohio's 11th U.S. Congressional District. In the Democratic primary for the overwhelmingly Democratic district, Nina Turner, a nationally known progressive candidate, who was a vocal supporter of Bernie Sanders' two presidential runs, was defeated by Chantel Brown, the candidate backed by the Democratic establishment. And there were two articles with very different takes on the election results. In the New York Times, August 4th edition, Alexander Burns wrote an article in 
string of wins, Biden Democrats see a reality check for the left. And the author basically endorses the view of establishment Democrats, like U.S. Representative Hakeem Jeffries, a top leader in the House Democratic establishment, who has claimed that this, uh, these, this election, as well as other recent elections, are showing that Democratic voters do not want progressives and don't buy their message. One of the quotes from Jeffries is, The majority of Democratic voters recognize that Trumpism and the radical right is the real enemy, not us. Apparently, the extreme left hasn't figured that out. So, still sniping at the progressives, their message, and claiming its way out of the mainstream. Far left, extremists, and all the rest. But a more revealing article on that, uh, the, what happened behind the scenes, is that published in the American Prospect by Alexander Salmon, titled, Nina Turner, Lost to the Red Box. By Red Box, he's not referring to that video dispensing machine outside your local grocery store or 7-Eleven. He's talking about a practice in which a candidate's campaign puts out a list of negative talking points against her opponent, framed in a red rectangle for getting attention, called the red box. Uh, this is done in anticipation that political action committees, who are supposedly using independent funds uh, to intervene in a campaign, will pick up those talking points and spread it among the voters, which is exactly what happened in this campaign. Brown campaign put out their red box of negative talking points and some political action committees allied with the Democratic establishment and funded by wealthy donors spent millions of dollars in ads over the final couple of weeks of the campaign on TV, radio, social media and mailers attacking Turner. And in some cases, the mailers um, said that Turner was against things like universal health care and raising the minimum wage, which were in exact contradiction to her long-standing positions on those issues. So she lost that race by about seven percentage points. So the establishment Democrats' narrative is that candidates like Turner lose because they're out-of-touch extremists. But in reality, the establishment Democrats are using shady tactics and political action committees funded by wealthy donors to try to kneecap any progressives who won't kowtow to their big money donors. So we have on one side of the political spectrum, wealthy donors trying to control who gets to vote and also uh, ready to overturn elections if necessary. And on the other side, the Democratic side, we have establishment Democrats relying on wealthy donors to help forestall any progressive candidates from winning a primary election and getting on the ballot. Um, this is a classic case of a minority of very wealthy people trying to block the potential power of the not-so-wealthy majority. In other words, an oligarchy versus democracy, which is what's happening here in the United States. So to give you some perspective on this idea of oligarchy and democracy, I want to take you on a brief tour 
jumping from ancient Greece and Rome up to the time of the founding of the U.S. Constitution and then bringing it back home to today to try to help make some sense of what's happening. That was Ancient Greek Song by Mr. Nicky. Words democracy and oligarchy, like a lot of the political terms we use to describe different forms of government, are Greek. And they're at least 2,500 years old. Around 500 BC, the independent state of Athens, this is long before Greece became a nation state, um, most of the cities there were independent states of their own. Anyway, the state of Athens reorganized its government. Power had previously been held by a small network of wealthy families. And in this change, the territory was divided up into a lot of districts were, that were each small enough for the common citizens, excluding slaves and women and foreigners, for the common citizens to come together face to face and discuss public affairs and make decisions for themselves. Um, these districts were called dames, and so we get our word democracy from the combination of dames, meaning a system where the people have power and can exercise it on their own, and the word uh, and the suffix crassy, which refers to power, so power by the people. Now, a little over a hundred years later, the Greek philosopher Aristotle conducted a study of the many forms of government in the region, and he divided them up into different categories, trying to determine what's the best form of government. Um, one of the basic distinctions he used is governments ruled by a single person, which he felt tended towards tyranny. Governments held by a small elite within the society, which he called oligarchy, the common term at the time. Ola means a few. So this is power in the hands of a few and democracies where power was in the hands of the many ordinary people, common citizens. Um, he felt like these all had their problems. Um, one person tended towards tyranny. Oligarchies tended for the small elite, usually the wealthy, because most, uh, most societies were divided between a small elite, a very wealthy and everybody else. Aristotle felt that oligarch in oligarchies, the elite used their power to protect and expand their property at the expense of everyone else. Whereas in democracies, he felt like there was a problem here too, because the common people would use their power to expropriate property from the wealthy and redivide it, leading to all kinds of civil strife and chaos and eventual collapse of the society into civil war. Um, he felt like the best form of government, at least the best practical form of government, was one in which elements of oligarchy and democracy were combined to balance each other. So there would be institutions in which the uh, wealthy had power and institutions in which the common people had some power, and they're each able to put a check on each other. He also thought that uh, there should be ideally a broad group of people in the middle who had some property but were not necessarily wealthy in order to put a check on both sides. 
that is, people in what we might call the middle class who had some small degree of property, they'd want to protect property rights. And they'd also want to protect themselves and everyone else against some kind of oppressive rule by the very wealthy minority. So the ideal society for Aristotle, he called a polity which had elements of both oligarchy and democracy. Now, around the same time as the foundation of Athens, the Romans overthrew their form of government and instituted something new, which they called the Roman Republic. Republic is a Latin word. Re or res means thing, and then public, just like today, means public, of the public, the people. So republic meant a government of the people. Um, their form of government was very close to what Aristotle regarded the ideal. They had some institutions that were meant to be dominated by the wealthy elite and other parts of the um, government in which the common people could elect their representatives. Even though in the Roman Republic there was continual strife, civil strife between the patricians representing the elite, the worthy elite, not representing them, but the patricians and the plebs, the plebeians who were the common people, this republic lasted for nearly 500 years, which was a good long run, well beyond, well beyond the lifetime of Aristotle. Uh, and it didn't collapse until around uh, the time that Jesus was reputed to be walking the earth and power devolved into a dictator, Caesar Augustus. You say you've changed the constitution. Well, you know, we'd all love to change your head. I'm sorry if I'm reviving nightmares of your high school history class, but I'm getting to the point here. And that is something that I've said in a previous show, but I wanted to fill out in a little more detail today. The point is, the founders of the U.S. government did not intend to create a democracy. They drew upon the ideas of Aristotle and the example of the Roman Republic, among other sources, in order to create what they called a republic. In a republic, you didn't just have democratic elements that gave power to the common people. You also had oligarchic elements that gave some powers to the more wealthy elite. Now, let me back up a minute to the American Revolution before the writing of the Constitution. When the leaders of the revolution were trying to get people, you know, fired up in order to to join the war against the King of England, they had to find a, a new ideology to counter the respect that people generally had for the King. Remember, under feudal society for years, the idea was that God gave power to the King to have power over the, over the people, over the society. So what they did is the revolutionary leaders counterposed this ideology power coming from the bottom up, the consent of the governed. Power came from the bottom up instead of the top down, and that meant they wanted a republic, a government of the people. And a republic at that time simply meant that. No king, rather, we ruled ourselves. The problem was, this: uh, the first government in the United States, created by the Articles of Confederation, was simply an alliance of confederation between independent states. And the states themselves, there was movements of the people who understood now that they had fought for the rule of the people 
and all these ideas about human equality, and they wanted to extend debt relief to people of less property. This worried the more educated and the more wealthy elites, which is what led them, among other reasons, to start this secret meeting, really is what it was, to create a new constitution. And within that constitution, the idea was to have oligarchic elements like the Senate and more democratic elements like the House of Representatives that would put a check on each other so neither would get too far out of hand. Um, if you look at the arguments of James Madison in his Federalist Number 10, he sounds a lot like Aristotle's book, The Politics. Most societies are divided between people of property, the wealthy elite, and the ordinary people who have less wealth, and they tend to struggle against each other for power. He didn't like these kinds of factions developed when a more unified society where both the rights of people of property and the rights of common people, some say in the government, were protected. So that was the whole idea between the U.S. Constitution. It was not simply a democracy, but it was a form of government that put a check on democracy in the name of the more wealthy elite, while also hoping to check the wealthy elite from becoming, having too much power themselves and use it against the people. One more element of this ideas from uh, classical Greece and the Roman Republic was pertinent to the deliberations of the constitutional founders. And that was they felt that they needed a centralized executive power to help direct the government. Uh, they knew in the English system of government, they not only had a parliament divided between the House of Lords and the House of Commons, similar to what they were trying to do, they had a king. The big worry, though, was that if they created a central executive, which became the presidency, there would be a tendency for power to amass in the hands of the presidency, become like a new king, which in classical thought meant would revert to a tyranny over the society. Their biggest fear, in line with classical thought, was that some military figure or charismatic leader would emerge speaking in the name of the people and challenging the structures of government that kept the peace between the wealthy elite and the common people. We're still living in the constitutional tension between protecting the rights of property of the elite and giving some say of power to the common people and also the emergence of a charismatic leader who wants to aggregate power in his own hands and uh, probably in the name of the people, but to the benefit of the billionaires that are allied with him. So am I suggesting that what we need is a better balance between oligarchy and democracy? Not exactly. I think it would be great if we could move things more in the direction of democracy and less in the direction of oligarchy because we've leaned way, way over on the side of oligarchy 
and respect for uh, the rights of wealth, the rights of property, as against the right of the people to have some control over their own future. Uh, but still, this is where I depart from your history class in that I do not think that the founders of this nation created a document for all time or were brilliant in the sense that they had completely worked out their own thinking politically. Uh, I think it's useful to understand how they thought and why they created the kind of institutions they did because it gives us a starting point from which to critique how is how are these things working and how clear is their thinking about this and then move from there see if we can improve on what they did um, their thinking never resolved the contradiction between how they justified the revolution in the name of equality and governance by the consent of the people and their willingness to tolerate economic inequality and the inevitability of people of greater wealth rising to the top of the political heap. So soon on, they started to split ways on this. Um, some folks tried to maintain the middle ground. We could keep a balance between these things in some ways, but some started inevitably justifying moving toward greater democracy and others justified moving toward greater oligarchy and what the institution of the constitution did and, and some of the many of the state constitutions as well which eventually fouled the model of the national government it created a framework for politicizing the conflict between these two forces between the mass public and the wealthy who always want to increase their wealth and the public that wants not to be feel oppressed by the kind of economic system they're living under or the kind of political system they're living under. The um, attempt to keep this conflict within institutions, I think, was um, a temporary expedient. It's came under greater strain over time and is cracking right now. It's come close to cracking a few times, but I think we're at the point where uh, it's going to be difficult to hold this structure up, which is why we see things like people invading the Capitol and trying to overturn the results of the election, because the sense is that they are losing power in this system and there's some kind of shadowy elite that controls everything. <laughs> Those things in my mind are both true. So the system isn't working for them. And if, it, if you try and try to get the system to work for you and it doesn't, you're going to turn to more radical measures like abandoning constitutional provisions and hoping some great white savior, and I emphasize white because that's important here, is going to protect you and take your side. So when they, right after they finished the Constitution, immediately people began taking sides. And what none of them could foresee is how the development of capitalism was going to make this conflict even more acute. So, for example, well, there was some foresight of uh, the, the development of commercial capitalism, but not industrial capitalism. So you had this conflict between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton that I've mentioned in previous uh, episodes of this show. 
Well, Jefferson tried to work out how you could have a, a broad middle class, like Aristotle recommended, and his solution was that lots of people should have land of their own. You should have a, a country full of small landowners rather than some big landowners or people who own the financial and commercial structure of the country. He won the presidency twice, but he lost the argument because society started moving in the other direction anyway. On Hamilton's side, he believed that there are better people who should be ruling, and those are generally the people who do well economically as well. So already Hamilton was developing a philosophy of how to make the United States a great commercial empire and, and develop our manufacturing sector, uh, the beginnings of capitalism in the United States. But he uh, saw this as a way to increase the greatness of the nation and therefore the greatness of the people leading the nation, not so interested in equality and democracy as Jefferson was, which is kind of ironic because, as we all know, Jefferson owned slaves. So their thinking was muddled on this. How do you reconcile economic inequality with political equality? And th this, the story has been a tension between those other ever since. But when industrial capitalism started developing towards the middle and the end of the 1800s, this problem became even more acute. Capitalism is a set of institutions that enabled human beings within a society to create much greater wealth than had been known in the past. But at the same time, most of this wealth is being channeled into the hands of a few, the people who already own capital, investable types of property. Meanwhile, the, the average person becomes more and more dependent on working for these other folks. Um, the investing class is able to um, dominate the working class because they control the government as well as great wealth that they can use to, uh, to hire their own armies as happened earlier in this nation things like that, the armies of, not really armies, but, um, well, they did get militias, state militias on their side, and they hired their own goon squads and things like that. Anyway, getting back to the point here, which is under capitalism, the problem became more acute because there's more wealth, but more of it was going to the elite. And you had growing economic inequality and continual strife between the very wealthy, the investing class, and the working people up through the uh, to the end of the Second World War. Now, what happened then was there was a brief period under very specific economic circumstances in which e inequality ceased to rise. Everybody was growing a little bit richer at about the same rate. Incomes were rising about the same rate, and there is much less inequality overall. These were specific circumstances, which I'll talk about in a future program, that were bound not to last. Lots of people on the um, left side, not the far left as they call it, but like in the center, center left, like Joe Biden and his Build Back Better, I think what they're trying to do is get back to the economy of the 50s and 60s because there was less inequality and some sense of social stability. And somehow people who grew up in that period or came of age of that period think that's normal. But in the course of U.S. history, it's not normal. 
it's been much more normal for there to be instability, which is a feature of capitalism, constant change, constant movement, and growing inequality. So in the 1970s, those conditions started to erode, and we been, went back to the same old struggle between the very wealthy and the less wealthy. Today, the oligarchy is winning. Our, uh, our sense of democracy is that it's slipping away. And I think we really need to think in our own minds about how to reconcile this, how to resolve this in one direction or another. Um, my side is on democracy, obviously, because I'm not one of the very wealthy. And I think we need to think about how we could create better institutions, change the institutions we have, and what a society would look like where there is much more equality and not this tension, which leads me in the direction of socialism, a topic for one of the upcoming shows. Well, that's it for today's show. I've set it up for continuing the conversation. I hope to hear what you have to say. Again, please leave your comments on the Allen on Politics Facebook page or the Allen on Politics YouTube channel. And while you're at it, subscribe, like, share, and all that kind of stuff. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll return and join in a dialogue with me. Yeah.